When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Federico Chiesa curled a beautiful goal in at Wembley for Italy against Spain. Alvaro Morata and Danny Olmo combined for an equaliser 10 minutes from time. The game went deep into the London night into extra time. Into penalties, where Morata turned from hero to villain, missing the crucial kick. And now Italy will play at Wembley on Sunday. Who will they face? Well, we'll preview that in the second half of today's show. I'm Jake from What If Football. This is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 31 all the way up until... Monday, where we'll be on Acast, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, where if you're feeling extra generous and are enjoying the show, a like and a subscribe and even a five-star review wouldn't go amiss. We'll be on those platforms three days a week after the European Championships with some new series, some rejinkle series, and we'll also be on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash whatifootball, where you can get the Eurodaily podcast as well. And after the Euros, seven days a week content for the price of a pint, that being £3, where... I'm currently situated. Let's get into today's show and one of the games of the tournament. Italy 1, Spain 1. Italy 4, Spain 2 on penalties. Leonardo Spinazzolo was out, rupturing his Achilles heartbreakingly. And in his place was Chelsea left-back Emerson Palmieri, he was in. Meanwhile, a whole raft of changes for Luis Garcia and Spain Pablo Sarabia had a muscle problem, so in was Danny Olmo, with Alvaro Morata surprisingly left out for Mikel Ayathabal. Meanwhile, Eric Garcia partnered Eimerick Laporte today. And the front three was lined up in more of a flexible front three. All, all can really play a, a false nine, but it was Danny Olmo on this occasion, used to pack out the midfield to cause Jorginho a lot of problems, and that's exactly what happened for Spain and for Italy. This time, Koke and Pedri in the midfield three, the two eights, the two roaming eights, they were pushing in as well. So you've got uh, Torres and Ferran Torres and Pedri interchanging nicely on that left-hand side, causing Marco Verratti all kinds of problems and Di Lorenzo just dropping off a little bit as well. 
With Yafabal on the right, he was pulling in whilst Danny Olmo was dropping deep, as he sometimes does for RB Leipzig for his club team. Sometimes he could play on the left, he could play and uh, uh, could play a false nine, and this is what he did here. Roaming around over Jorginho's shoulder, Jorginho couldn't really get a handle of him all the game, really, and uh, it, it gave that extra body in midfield for Spain. And when the midfield, I think, like Koke and Pedri are pushing up, you don't necessarily need need a number nine. Luis Enrique said that he this was this tactical plan was formed off the basis of um, Leonardo Bonucci and Giorgio Chiellini's handling of Romelu Lukaku and supposedly thinking, probably thinking that if they could handle Romelu Lukaku like that, what chances Alvaro Morata or Gerard Moreno got? And uh, this is the plan that he devised with this false nine, which worked really well, I thought, anyway. And it's it's not as though they've got problems with bodies forward. You've got the inverted wingers, which inside forwards, which are, which are very good at getting forward and central as well, to be fair. And uh, Olmo dropping deep is not really a problem, really, when you've got uh, Pedri, Busquets, Koke, all sort of interchanging, being little intricate little passes in and around the box. And Italy, by the second half at least, were dropping very, very deep anyway. Spain, of course, have got history against this in Italy and European Championships. Cesc Fabregas playing the false nine in both games. They played in the group stages, didn't they? And they played in the final in 2012. One of them was successful, a 4-0 route in the final four spin. The other was a 1-1 draw like this one in the group stages. Unfortunately for Italy, back in 2012, there was no penalty shootout in the group stages. Spain were being fairly patient, what we've um, been accustomed to seeing. I thought they were passing it a lot slicker and a lot smoother. This time around, gone are the days of um, Seville, at least in the first half, first, well, first hour really, up until the goal. They weren't, they were, they weren't doing this turgid... Bad, bad tiki-taka, there's no, nothing worse in football in my mind than bad tiki-taka where it's used in the pejorative sense of the word tiki-taka, it's, it's original meaning. Obviously that's been transformed into something of beauty from various teams, Barcelona, Spain, in the uh, from 2008 to 2012 at least. And here as well, I thought the first half at least they were playing good tiki-taka. Second half, maybe less so as they were uh, growing into the game, but we'll get into that later on. It was a mix of Chiro Immobile and Nicolo Barella tasked with dealing with uh, Sergio Busquets, who had a great game as well. He was getting a lot of joy supplying, um, supplying the fullbacks, supplying the wingers, and supplying Koke, Pedri, and Olmo as well. He was his head was just like one of them Churchill dogs, completely on the move, <laughs> and uh, oh, it was it was fantastic again. And he has been one of Spain's standout players, like Pedri. Is Pedri is up there for. Pedri will win best young player at the tournament. I've got no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, deserves to. Um, he's been absolutely fantastic. A revelation. 18. He's played all this football for Barcelona this season and he's still fresh to do what he's done in this tournament. I think he's absolutely fantastic. Going to be... I think I... I don't know if I said in a previous podcast episode on this series, but he's definitely winning a Ballon d'Or in his future. I've got no doubts about that whatsoever. So the first breakthrough it came from Italy. They had previously had a chance on the counter through Federico Chiesa. And on the bat, in the start of the second half, the battle between Immobile and Laporte was uh, quite fun to watch. They were just bouncing off each other. Laporte losing out in the first instance uh, with Immobile's getting through on goal. And he's sort of, I don't know if it was a, a lob or a deft flick to the near far post that he was trying, but it, it, it didn't come off. And then obviously they were just bounced off each other a couple of times. But uh, around this time, it was. It was an established pattern of play now that Spain's possession, but they had a lot more territory in, than in the first half, which 
I think that was a great move by Italy, sitting extremely deep, sitting on the edge of the box, packing it out. And then you've got Chiesa, he was still in the game then, and you've got Insigne, who would provide the pace. Obviously, Immobile is not too not too uh, slow either, and they could easily um, break out. And I thought that it served to slow down Spain a lot if they just sat off, which is what they did at the start of the uh, start of the second half. It reduced Spain's tempo way down, and then that's why that's how Spain get nullified because the the intricate little balls that they try to play it turns into bad tiki taka, and this is what we were seeing up until the goal anyway. And um, an Alba cross finds Donnarumma. Donnarumma was a little bit shaky in the game, I felt, and uh, he. Just rolled it a couple of yards and then the counter was on. Mobley had a bit, Insignia had a bit and then it burst out to uh, Federico Chiesa. And what a curl, what a strike that was. He scored uh, two goals at this championship, both at Wembley. And this one was a fantastic uh, strike into the bottom corner there. And um, Chiesa was fantastic all game again. I mean, he has to start the final now. Um, I think he's definitely uh, succeeded. Domenico Berardi on the uh, right-hand side. He was great on either, either flank, really. This goal came from the left. And he was really, at this time in the second half, Italy's great outlet on the counter, as they were looking to sit deep. And I've loved discussing uh, his pace, his uh, running abilities, just up there with the best wingers, the best footballers, really, in Europe. And he was fantastic. I felt that in the first half, Italy were fairly vulnerable when they were playing a little bit higher trying to play their normal game but in the second half by sitting deep when Spain were they couldn't be intricate well or they had to be extra intricate to get through but in that in sort of being caught in two minds and not being confident to play the pass through that Italian wall they slowed the play right down to be fair around this stage Italy were very very comfortable so the main the main players for Spain were Michele Athabal who's receiving a lot of the ball and he had a glorious chance, the first real chance of the game. It wasn't even a shot, but Pedri played an absolutely exquisite ball through the lines and it was just one of those passes which you think, is that Iniesta? <laughs> Ten years ago, that would have been exactly what Iniesta did and it was just, what a through ball that would have been and it would have been one of the assists of the tournament. Uh, Mikhail Yafabal on the ball, it just ran a bit too fast and he got it caught under his feet and that was a tiny little glimpse of what Spain could do when... Uh, Italy weren't sitting as deep. And to be fair, Yafabal, he looked a bit off it with his touch throughout quite a lot of the game. Of course, he had that missed chance with his head late on and he was pulled off um, quite quickly after that. And he uh, he had another poor touch. He got deflected to uh, Olmo where he could have had the chance himself, but Olmo, the chance fell to him for the first save of the game about a quarter of the way through the game. He had a Yathabal had a wildly curled shot just before the half. It went up into the stands, and he was growing. He grew a bit into the game. He had a he was um, forced to save from distance and teed up uh, Sergio Busquets for probably what the closest chance of the game was up until that point when um, Busquets curled just went slightly over the bar. I think Donnarumma would have caught it anyway. Um, but the main danger man up in that front three was probably Danny Olmo leading the line. Um, Spain did look a lot sharper in the final third with him as opposed to a Morata or a Morena. So it, it figures that um, it figures that Luis Enrique's plan with a false nine did definitely work. And even in the... There was an instance in the second half where he was, he was up against Chiellini and Bonucci on his own and he just ran them both ragged in the same instance, unfortunately, though, that Spain uh, couldn't get through that. 
But how could Italy really exploit Spain? Obviously, we've discussed the uh, the low block and then counter. There was a warning sign against Spain, obviously playing a high line when they're keeping this ball for, I think they had 70% of the possession again. And um, there the, the was a warning sign, a shot across the bow, so to speak, against Spain's high line. Emerson's pass to Nicola Brell, it was offside, of course, but um, that outlet was definitely there. And um, Brell obviously curled that onto the post. If it had timed his run a bit better off, more pertinently, if the pass came in a little sooner, then uh, we might have had a uh, an actual chance to speak of there in uh, in the uh, statistics at the end. There were a few balls over the top there in the first half hour that uh, Italy just couldn't get on the get on the end of really. But those were the uh, those were the warning signs for Spain. Obviously, the there was a high line when they counted because obviously Spain were pushing so high up to uh, to counteract that very extremely low block of Italy. As Piliqueta was playing high and he nullified for the most part Emerson. I thought in the first, before the goal anyway, in the first half, first 60 minutes or so, whenever it really looked good, they were going through the left-hand side. And Emerson naturally isn't going to do the job that Leonardo uh, Spinazzola does, going up high on that left flank, almost a left winger is he. Um, and I felt that left Lorenzo Insigne isolated slightly on the left. He wasn't, um, he wasn't getting any overlapping runs from Emerson whenever he got it. So he had to... Uh, we had to work with uh, Immobile a couple of occasions, and um, there was a there was one chance where Emerson and Insigne played it quite nicely around us. Piliqueta when he was uh, when he was out, and uh, that drew bizarrely Unai Simon out of the goal. And I was thinking, why he was like right on the edge of the box, and then obviously it causes havoc. You've got three Spanish men on the on the line. You've got uh, Insigne or Barella, it was rather uh, not knowing what to do. He was sort of caught in two minds whether to. Uh, whether to strike it first time and hope it goes in on his weak foot or you know, shift it onto his left and either way it didn't uh, obviously result in anything. And it was just causing unnecessary torture on Spanish fans and the defence. I didn't think that uh, Simon and the two centre-backs, I thought they looked fairly shaky all game, to be honest. There was an instance where um, Simon cleared the ball straight into Laporte's face and it was, it was clear there that the... Um, the days of PK, Puyol, Ramos, Casillas are definitely gone. There's no... Obviously, it doesn't help that Laporte was um, parachuted him late in the day. Obviously, Sergio Ramos's injury, I think, probably necessitated that to an extent. There was signs of Ramos and Pau Torres, um, centre-back who came on, um, for Eric Garcia, that there was that understanding there beginning to form and that might have been something coming into this tournament but um, apparently obviously uh, Ramos wasn't selected because of his fitness worries and I think Luis Enrique was trying to cobble together something on the fly really with Garcia and Laporte being you know teammates at Man City last season past couple of seasons really um, but it just I don't think it ever really works they don't play the whole lot of games together really the sort of the second string maybe even third string centre-half partnership at um, City um, in recent years. Donnarumma, though, that's not to say that Donnarumma had a fantastic game. Obviously, he kicks out the counter-attack, but his passing was all off. He had a few stray long balls to uh, that just ended up in uh, Spanish hands, like 40 yards from goal, and it's unnecessary pressure, really. His, his passing out wide was uh, slightly off, although... Um, those those were a bit safer than you know playing it straight down the uh, straight down the neck of Busquets or Coke etc. Um, 
I thought Emerson was key defensively and offensively. You know, the game was sort of lurching to Pedri versus Jorginho, Koke versus Verratti, Busquets versus Barella. You've got Insigne and Immobile combining as, you know, Insigne likes to cut in, but he's got nothing on the left-hand side, so it necessitated him um, linking with Immobile. And... Um, like 10, 15 minutes before the, before the halftime break, Spain was sitting off um, an Italy press for one of the uh, only sort of periods in the game, really. And it kind of had them on the ropes a little bit when Emerson was venturing forward, but it didn't just didn't um, just didn't take place enough for my liking. He hit the bar close to stoppage time, of course, when he finally overlapped Insignia, obviously. He was never going to be so high up the pitch like Spinazzola. Um, I think that'll be key for the final when... Um, the player that, depending on who, um, depending on which right back he's going to face, of course, which we'll be previewing again um, later on. And I thought in the second half, Emerson was in a two minds quite a lot. He didn't know when to run. He didn't know when to uh, join the attack to in- overlap Insignia. Obviously, with Spinazzola and Insignia, they've got that uh, they've got that relationship there where he's going to know far sooner than what Emerson did here. And. Um, Defensively, he was caught in two minds because you've, you've had Danny Olmo was found in behind the uh, defensive line. He sent in an enticing cross, which was uh, cleared quite well by uh, De Lorenzo on the right there. And then the Afferbal was in behind. He laid it off for Busquets for that chance that I uh, spoke of later. But what of Spain's chances? Well, we had um, the Bal's header, which it looked as though Spain were going to rue as he uh, came off for... Uh, I think it was Moreno or Morata, at least. Um, if so close, he, if he'd have got a connection onto it, it would have been an equaliser, obviously. Iathabal uh, then turned, hopefully, into a provider, but uh, his layoff to Olmo, he drove it. He put a, bit, a little bit of fade on it when it should have been arrowed into the bottom corner there off Olmo, but uh, that was from outside the box, another speculative chance, really. And then Morata showed his lack of confidence, really. He was found in behind the defence, but he was caught in about 37 different minds, and he uh, ended up just passing it across the box and Chiellini or Bonucci uh, put it out for a corner. And then with 10 minutes to go, as uh, Spain were, Spain's chances were, they, were, they weren't drying up, they were sort of, they were getting that rhythm again after a couple of substitutions. Almo and Morata, it was such a, it was such an easy goal for Italy to concede that it's not the type of goal that you imagine that Italy would concede at this tournament when you've seen all the displays that they have done from right from the start against Turkey to now. Do you remember Turkey winning this championship? I know. Um, it was so, such an easy goal to come. See, Murata to Almo, Murata there. And he's found in behind the goal. And it was so simple. And it was a simple finish. Gave Donnarumma the eyes. A one-all shouts Vamos into the camera. And we're at the races there with 10 minutes to go. We're going to get another 10, another 30 minutes of this match, which you know I was pleased about because it was one of the games of the tournament. Just, you know, like the Italy-Belgium game we discussed a week or so ago now, um, had the quality of a club game so and it, it's hard to not have the quality of a club game when you've got such great talents on the pitch as well this was though the biggest adversity that Italy had faced in the tournament you know they, they had conceded before of course but those were pulled back goals against Austria and Belgium but on the face of it consolations you know you had the misfiring Romelu Lukaku in the second half in uh, Munich but that's probably the closest Italy came to you know been level They've not been behind for two years. They've conceded three goals in two years now. And it's amazing, really, isn't it? But, um, there was a definitive wave of opposition here, you know, in the last 10 minutes where Spain were proper going for it. But it, 
they just about clung on. Obviously, a goal now would mean elimination. Um, Morata was finding himself in behind Bonucci and Chiellini a lot. And the extra time period, it was more more of Italy breaking play up, getting Spain out of their rhythm. The tide and mood had turned dramatically by extra time. Italy were clinging on, they clung on. Clung on through extra time, clung on, and that meant penalties. And as soon as the final whistle went, you could kind of tell that Italy were always going to win the penalty shot. Obviously, Manuel Locatelli's first penalty saved there. But it, the confidence in the Italian players, obviously, we've all seen the pictures of Chiellini just getting Jordi Albi in a headlock in front of the referees. Um, sort of like, he was portraying his dominance over him there, wasn't he, really? And it, it couldn't have been, if the Spanish players in the huddle really seen that, he, that would have knocked them down a peg or two, and Chiellini was loving it, wasn't he? So... We get to the penalty shootout, Locatelli gets his penalty save, but Italy get an instant reprieve. Danny Olmo blazes his penalty wide, uh, well over the bar rather. Uh, Blot is emphatic, Moreno finds it high into the net. Bonucci and Thiago, um, easy chances of sending the keeper the wrong way. Bernadeschi with a one hell of a penalty put into the postage stamp. And then and then it came down to Alvaro Morata, and as soon as the camera cut to him, I was just thinking, oh no, oh no, because he, he missed against Slovakia. He dodged it, dodged taking a penalty in the penalty shoot against Switzerland. And as soon as it, he just didn't look confident and you can see in his eyes that um, he's a fairly timid guy anyway, I think. And he doesn't take well to criticism and obviously, hopefully he's not going to face too much criticism um, after this because it is a penalty after all. You know, It wasn't a great penalty, but... He didn't mean to miss it, did he? Obviously, and he obviously misses it. Um, and then Jorginho steps up um, to win it. And great conversion rate for Chelsea. He's got that technique we all know. And like Totti's Kuchiao in uh, 2000, like Perlo in 2012. Confidence exuded and he didn't do a Kuchiao, the spoon. He didn't do a Penenka. Um, he just rolled it into the opposite corner. Unai Simon sent him to his knees. Didn't <laughs> completely stranded. Absolutely fantastic penalty. Elegance for to Italy. They're through to the final. Can they win it? Obviously, it depends on who's going to win the second semi-final, which we will, of course, cover um, later on in the show. But uh, on the face of the whole tournament, Italy are definitely in the top one or two teams. <laughs> They're probably the best team in the tournament. Let's... Um, Let's put it right there. Um, they have lost a little bit of something with Leonardo Spinazzola gone, of course, which might reveal an avenue for the two teams that play tonight, being that being England and Denmark, of course. It would have been, although Spain probably had the better of the chances, the better of the territory, obviously the better of the possession. You know, Pedri had a 100% pass completion rate, which is outrageous for an 18-year-old in a high-stakes game like this. I just... Over the course of the whole tournament, I just don't feel as though they have been better than Italy. Obviously, that doesn't matter in a game like this, especially when it goes down to penalties. But Italy have come through. I think they'll be a lot stronger for this. There's nothing in the statistics, the numbers that I ran on Twitter, at what if underscore YouTube, which you might have seen last night. Follow me on there. There's nothing to suggest that teams with who've gone through a penalty shootout in the semifinals have any less of an advantage in the final. Also, there's nothing to suggest that playing the second semi-final gives you a disadvantage either there's been 14 tournaments with semi-finals in the 
team that had played the first one have won 8 out of 14, so it's fairly even. So there's nothing to suggest that it even really matters. Obviously, we've got all in one place, being at Wembley as well, it um, also will, will matter that bit less. And um, so let's go to Italy's potential final opponent. So England. England focus their play down the left, really. They've got that understanding now between Luke Shaw, who's now cemented as a left-back, um, and Raheem Sterling. They've got, it will be a game, if it's England versus Italy on Sunday, it will be a game on the transition. Italy will probably press a lot more than they did here. Obviously, we all know now they can um, they can drop extremely deep. Obviously, that is the, that is the default setting um, <laughs> for Italian football, for Italy in general. Uh, but in the, this team's more, a lot more suited to attacking and pressing high end, being that high energy, you know. You've got, to, you got uh, players from Inter, Atalanta, Sassuolo in the team and they're, they're more comfortable with that, really. And um, I think with this game being on transition, the right winger, if it does happen, of course, is these are all hypotheticals. I'm not suggesting that one team's going to win rather than the other. So the right winger probably should be a quick winger as well. So you've got Phil Foden, he's great on the transition, Jaden Sancho, Bukayo Saka, they've all performed fairly well in um, in brief bursts in this tournament, which is great because for England, they're fairly fresh, aren't they? The midfield will need Mason Mount to be as tireless as ever to help uh, Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips are then outnumbered. We've obviously, you know, you've got the uh, huge experience of Marco Verratti, you've got exuberant Nicolo Barella, and uh, Jorginho ain't bad either, is he? And uh, they'll have to uh, pin their hopes on that Jorginho versus Mason Mount battle. Of course, they'll know each other, won't they, from the club setup. Harry Kane will need to drag Benucci and Chiellini around, maybe drop into that space behind Jorginho. Maybe uh, Danny almost laid out that plan there, hasn't he, uh, for Spain there, uh, for any centre forward who plays against who plays against Italy, be it Harry Kane, be it Casper um, Dahlberg, be it Yusuf Poulsen, you know. Mikel Damsgaard as well can do that in the, from a Denmark point of view. Cal Walker will need all his recovery pace and positional awareness against Lorenzo Insigne. Of course, Luke Shaw uh, with Federico Chiesa. Chiesa needs to be dominated and snuffed out if England are to win, if they get through to the final, of course. And uh, I'm confident that Harry Maguire can handle Chiro Immobile in his current form. I think he's tailed off slightly. He's going back to his Italian form, really. But um, I think I would be confident that Harry Maguire and John Stones can handle him between the two. So to Denmark, we know how flexible they can be. Andres Christensen can help out in a switch from a 3-4-3 to a 4-3-3 there. And it will probably be a 4-3-3 versus a 4-3-3 because Italy, Denmark won't want Italy to have dominance in the middle of the park. Obviously, you've got Heuberg, you've got Delaney and Christensen in there. They'll they'll all be asked to do a job. It might stymie the creativity, but as we know, they've got Damsgaard popping in, up in and around, as we say, in those little spaces around Jorginho. Making, giving themselves an extra body in the midfield, giving them four against a three. Obviously, Danny Almo laid that blueprint bare here, didn't he? And uh, the wing-backs, Strigel Larsen and, um, of course, Jakim Myler, they're there to get at the wing, the full-backs there for uh, Italy. With Di Lorenzo cutting in, I think we could see Myler have a field day there, maybe. While Strigel Larsen has uh, a couple of good games recently, and if he nullifies the threat of Emerson... And it could see a very, very um, even contest. Simon Kier will also know all about the Chiro Mobile threat, obviously playing his trade in Italy with AC Milan. And um, I fear a bit for Yannick Vestergaard against uh, Federico Chiesi. He might give him an absolutely torrid time of it with his run. We all know that Vestergaard isn't the best on his uh, feet with his pace and more better at the uh, 
airily, let's say. And um, I can see Benucci and Keeling handling a conglomeration of Denmark Forge, really Dahlberg, Pulse and Brathwaite quite easily. So they will have to function more like Spain did here. And just be more like floating around false nines. We know Brathwick can play either wing, Pulson and Dolberg are fairly, fairly flexible in their approach. Damsgaard pops up anywhere he wants, um, seemingly, um, but he'll be more tasked with, uh, he'll be more tasked with uh, making himself a nuisance around Jorginho to, uh, to uh, heavily skew the numbers game for Denmark. But of course, we'll. Uh, We'll know a lot more tomorrow, won't we, after the semi-final tonight, which of course is England versus Denmark, and we'll be previewing the final tomorrow. So uh, we'll do that more in depth tomorrow. But first, after the short break, we've got a 2021 trivial teaser. Welcome back. So congratulations to Jake and George, regulars, of course, still uh, with the correct trivial teaser answer. And uh, well done to Dave, and you follow there on our Twitter feed at whatif underscore YouTube. They all guessed correctly. They all guessed Karim Benzema. I thought I made it too difficult, but apparently no Caesar is too difficult for the followers there on Twitter. <laughs> so let's do it. Our answer today. I am a midfielder. I've been managed by Julian Nagelsmann and Franco Foda. Some of my teammates have been Timo Werner, David Alaba, Adamola Luckman, Emil Smithrow. Ibrahima Konate Kanate, if I can spit that out correctly. I'm a midfielder. I've been managed by Franco Foda and Julian Nagelsmann. Some of my teammates have been Ibrahima Kanate, Emil Smith Rowe, Adam Luckman, David Alaba, and Timo Werner. I wonder who I could possibly be. Find out the answer tomorrow. And if you think you know the answer, do what those fine lads did up there and uh, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. Now after this short break, we'll be previewing the big game today. The big game or debt store spill, as they say in Denmark, because it is England versus Denmark in the second European Championship semi-final. Welcome back. So let's kick off with England. What makes them different from 2018? Well, if you think about the games, they haven't lost yet. They've not conceded yet, of course, in uh, in the group stages in 2018 with that 3-5-2 that they played. They conceded even against Panama. They conceded against Tunisia. They conceded in every game by the Sweden quarterfinal. And it has been more of a smoother ride for England, really, hasn't it, in this tournament. The quarterfinal was fairly fairly uh, regulation against Sweden in 2018. But aside from that, every game was a battle. Panama aside, maybe, <laughs> but that is a group stage game. Getting into the, the nitty-gritty, the... Columbia penalty shootout that was a, a monkey off the back as we said uh, before which we also said against Germany but the Germany game was far far more straightforward um, than the Columbia game ever was in terms of uh, England's control of the game you never felt that England were in control of any fixture aside from Panama in the World Cup which is kind of damning but and you may say that they got a good draw. They avoided Brazil in the quarterfinal. They avoided even Japan in the last 16. But for me, England, yeah, they probably deserved, on the base, on the face of it, probably around quarterfinals, maybe semifinals from 2018. Here, though, they've been far more controlled, kept the ball, played more like a tournament-winning team than a, 
than an England team. That's the best way I can put it. Really, they've not had any injuries and not have any. Not really. There'll be some fatigue over a club season, of course. But uh, Harry Kane, outside of him, I don't think any of them have really looked sluggish. Harry Kane, obviously rejuvenated by the goals that he scored in the past two games, of course. There's a lot bigger squad depth, like, for example, you had Fabian Delph at the 2018 World Cup. Ashley Young was a starter. Here, though, we've got uh, Foden, Grealish, Sancho, Mount. All their minutes have been managed. Mount, obviously, forced minutes managed, but uh, he's still fresh coming into this game. Foden and Sancho, they've only started a couple of games each. Sancho's only started one. Foden started two. Grealish only started one. Saka started two games. So they've all had... All been heavily rotated. The only players I think that haven't featured really, I think, have been Ben White. Outfield players, that is. Ben White and one other, and I forget who the other one is. That's a big apologies to whoever that is. Um, but of course, it's John Henderson. He's coming off an injury layoff, and he's sort of working his way back into it. And he's uh, he can't unseat Calvin Phillips, really. Uh, we'll be discussing the discussing the potential teams team lineups that they will be uh, later on um, is this the best chance that England have ever had at winning a tournament obviously outside of 1966 and you've got to say yes because um, France in 2018 you always felt that they would beat England so the even if Croatia didn't win and England held out for a 1-0 win in that semi-final I always felt that France would be there <laughs> waiting to uh, beat England quite handsomely in the final Maybe not far too. Um, I think Italy is probably a tiny step down from France in 2018. They might play more attractive football, but the football that France play or played in 2018, and they were starting to in this tournament until they got knocked out, is sort of the tournament football, the sort of football that you win tournaments with, the sort of managed, controlled, which is the sort of thing that England have been doing now. We, Gareth Southgate has studied Portugal and France on how to win. A tournament, obviously, both of those went out in the last 16, but previously, of course. Home advantage also has to be discussed. Um, obviously, all four of the semi finals played all three group games at home, um, but now, semi finals, the atmosphere will be ramped up to Germany in the last 16 proportions. You'd imagine there's more, more fans allowed in the stadium, I believe. I think it's up from 45 to 60,000. Um, it looked full last night, apart from the odd uh, few seats and obviously the executive part of the stadium near the dugout. But that's um, that's usual for Wembley, even when it's uh, no COVID. But the it'll look full, it'll feel full, it'll sound full, it'll definitely sound full. And um, there'll be some Danish people who uh, emanate from the British Isles who will be able to get a ticket, which is good, good for the atmosphere. But it'll be largely English and largely on there, so I don't think that'll... That will hinder Denmark. They've gone through a lot more um, on the pitch, off the pitch, um, than most teams would in a lifetime over the course of these three weeks. And I think Denmark now will be playing without fear because they've already gone through the worst that any football team should ever have to suffer from the first game. And they've come out at the end of that. Everybody's fit, healthy, we assume, we hope. A picture of Christian Eriksen went up on social media. It was fantastic to see. Um, so they're playing without fear. They don't, what 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 have they got to lose? They're in a semi-final for the first time since 1992. Obviously, they got to a semi-final in 64. They got into a semi-final in 84. They have performed better than England in European Championship history, which is what Kasper Schmeichel was alluding to yesterday when he was asking what's coming on because they've never won it. And that's true. Denmark have won the European Championship and England have never done it. And uh, England have got to 
this is their third semi-final in the European Championship. This is Denmark's fourth. So <laughs> they've got more pedigree in this tournament. Well, that's history. Let's go look at now. Um, Denmark will probably play a 3-4-3, easily interchangeable, as we spoke of earlier with Andreas Christensen dropping into that midfield. I think they'll play a similar 3-4-3 to Germany. Schrager Larsson and uh, Myler are exceedingly attacking. Um, could be pinned back, probably will start slightly deeper because this is the, probably the biggest game. As I said in a previous episode, I won't, I'm won't. i not judging Denmark sort of pre-Russia because even the Belgium game, they were running high on emotion. They were still sort of... Ericsson was still in hospital and it was still that emotion overcoming in the home ground. I think it's helped Denmark that they've been shuttled out all across Europe and even Asia <laughs> to uh, play their games because it's taken them away from home comforts and taken away from an over-emotional Danish crowd. They're not playing on emotion now, as we know, that insane win against Russia. Good win against Czech Republic. Fantastic win against Wales as well. They are more than what they were in the first two games. I think that's a com- even completely different, you know, almost sport they were playing their emotions are now in check they are now playing the football that they would have been playing irrespective of what happened in that first game I believe now so I I judge them more off Russia onwards and I feel as though this is probably the hardest test obviously Belgium but you know that's the line in the sand that I'm drawing there this is judging them properly I think it's kind of unfair to judge them in the first two games they will sit they'll sort of stake stake England out the fullbacks I think will probably sit fairly deep see what England do because England start games very very well um, traditionally apart from maybe apart from maybe the Germany game aside when Germany got the ball controlled it a little bit for the first 10 minutes but of course seeded control as the match wore on but they will grow into it you've got uh, Damsgaard in the midfield Hoiberg Delaney kind of similar to the Croatia midfield with two uh, Two destroyers, although Hoiberg has a propensity to be creative. He's got three assists at this championship. He's only less than uh, Steven Zuber on four. And um, you've got that creative force in Damsgaard, which is more like a Modric, of course, not with the experience that Rakitic, Modric and uh, Brozovic had in 2018. But England have seen off a midfield like that before. We've uh, seen Kroos, Goretzka, Muller, Havertz, those, those types of players players that have won Champions Leagues that have been seen off by this English midfield. So, like I said, with Mount in the previous segment about nullifying Italy, he'll have to be tireless again. This won't be a walkover. This won't be a comfortable... As as good as Germany are on paper and historically, it won't be as comfortable as that game was. That game, By no means was that game comfortable. It was... 2-0 uh, didn't... Uh, say a lot for what actually happened in that game it was more it was definitely a nail biter 1-0 and this will be exactly the same but ratcheted up to 11 because of the progression from a last 16 to a semi-final game I don't think that midfield controls as much as what the Germany midfield on paper potentially could have Um, Damsgaard will operate kind of like a Kai Havertz role for Germany flitting in and out sort of running the channels as he did to a plum in, in the past few games has been, I'd say he's probably Denmark's star man alongside Joachim Myler in terms of going forward. And he will pr- probably provide more threat than Havertz did for Germany, at least in that game. And uh, he's very mobile, probably their biggest threat, that is what I would say. Martin Brathwick hasn't had the best tournament. I feel as though Kyle Walker will probably get at him. I feel as though he could shift Brathwick over to the right and we could see... Um, 
could see Dahlberg operate from the left. I'm fairly confident, though, that Dahlberg can be nullified by Stones and Maguire. He'll just have to keep in check with Declan Rice, see if he can uh, sort of patrol that area as well with, Dahl as well with uh, Dahlberg and Damsgaard. He will look for space. He'll attempt to draw them out. Obviously, we've got Calvin Phillips there to cover. Declan Rice can even drop into the three if needed. If needed, um, obviously, whether or not Saka plays, he could potentially drop back into a right wing back role. Kyle Walker shift in. If he doesn't, Declan Rice can easily do that at the, at the uh, middle of the defensive three. Kyle Walker out to the right and uh, match Denmark 3-4-3. But I think it's not a case of, I don't think England will match Denmark at all. There were obviously worries about Germany in the last 16, the way they dismantled Portugal, Portugal playing a 4-3-3. I don't think Denmark have the have the ability to do that in terms of they won't be going into this thinking we're a superior team, we can take it to England. Although they you know, they've got talent, Myler, who can, you know, exploit that left hand channel like Robin Gerson's did to Portugal. But I think Denmark will let England take the lead and see what they do and you know and adopt tactically to meet them. So I think England will stick with a four three three, take the game to Denmark. They've pressed more as the tournaments continue. I don't expect them to press as much as they did against Ukraine. It'll be similar lines, not as aggressive though. Um Pickford, statistically the best goalkeeper at the tournament, will be Golden Glove. They'll stop the most goals, five clean sheets, he'll be there. Stones and Maguire will be in the middle, um, up there for me with Kylian and Bonucci as the best defensive partnership at the tournament. Kyle Walker's got great recovery pace in a four, so he must stay. Luke Shaw, deadly from set pieces, as we've seen from the, uh, as we've seen from the previous game, has got the most assists at a European Championship in an England shirt, tied with David Beckham from 2000. The midfield three stays as it is. Phillips, Rice, Mount, the standard three in midfield. This slight clamour for Jordan Henderson I've seen, uh, mainly by Liverpool fans, but uh, Calvin Phillips just gets everywhere. So he will be key, especially in that right, working with Kyle Walker, working with whoever's a right winger to uh, nullify Joachim Myler, especially because I, I've said in him quite a lot, but he's very, very dangerous and he will be probably key to what happens in this game. Kane and Sterling start goes without saying and for me the only position up for grabs now is right wing um, if Southgate is to play similar to Ukraine he'll stick with Sancho or revert to Saka if it is going to be more of a transitional game he'd probably go with a Foden Mount could even go there in a 3-4-3 couldn't he um, well, let's just talk about the 3-4-3 my team in a 3-4-3 would be Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire Trippier right wing back Phillips and Rice uh, Shaw left wing back Mount on the right wing Kane and Sterling um, and in this sort of formation this is probably what it would be if it goes to a 3-4-3 because Mount is sensible and he can drop to make it a 3-5-2 if Christensen uh, stays as a centre half it will uh, obviously overload Denmark in the midfield overrun them um, Denmark as we know flexible tactically equally as we said Declan Rice can drop into a 3-4-3 if the start, if England start over four three three, and then can easily be flexible, no matter if Saka's plays or if Declan Rice can drop into the defence, obviously Mount can drop from wing to pack out the midfield, and it, for the first time you are, well, I am at least confident that England have numerous tactical systems that they can seamlessly shift in in game. 
and that I can't say has been done for the first time in a while. We've been talking on the Euro Rewinds recently about Sven Goran Eriksson playing Paul Scholes on the left, and <laughs> that could have been a four-two-three-one really. We've we've one one or two sacrificed, but we are in a new age for England, obviously. A sixth semi-final, notably all six semi-finals England have had. They've played the second semi-final. One one draw, one uh, one lost four, of course, from a semi-final point of view. So it didn't really matter too much. Um, but we will be covering it tomorrow, of course. England versus Denmark will be previewing the final. Italy versus question mark. But until then, see they, and it is coming home, of course. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.